everybody. How's it going? Doing well. Yeah? So good. Thanks for answering that. I really appreciate that. Um, I figured since we have a kind of pulpit thing in here, I might as well use it. Um, so yeah, apologize if this is a little weird for you, but I'm just going to go with it because I wanted to. Um, but my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Uh, I'm really glad to see you here tonight. Um, and at RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so what that means is that we think that God's grace is the most important thing that you need to know. So whether you're doing super well this week or whether you're doing terribly, what you need to know is that God loves you. You need to know God's grace in Jesus. And this semester uh, at RUF, we've been in a series uh, called Songs That Shape Us. Uh, and we have been looking in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And the book of Psalms are, uh, it's a book of songs that were written for public worship. Uh, and they're songs that would, uh, they were supposed to teach the, the original audience, they're supposed to teach us how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to creation. They're songs that meet us where we are, and they take us where we need to go. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 127. Psalm 127. And uh, before we get started, I just want to put a question out there for you. What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean for you to be successful? For some of us, it might be uh, a future career. Uh, For others of us, it might be having a really good work-life balance. Some of us, it might be uh, having a spouse who loves us and fulfills us. Psalm 127 is actually about what it means to be successful. It's a song about success. And this psalm tells us that success is not found in what we do, but in who we trust. It's not found in what we do, but in who we trust. It tells us that success is trusting God. True success doesn't come from the products that we produce. It doesn't come from crushing it. It comes from living in light of how God calls us to, no matter what the outcome. It comes in trusting him. And as we look at this psalm together tonight, we're going to see three things. So kind of my my outline here. First, success is trusting in God. We're going to unpack what that means. And second, trusting in God can be hard. And then third and finally, God wants us to trust him. So success is trusting in God. Trusting in God can be hard. And God wants us to trust him. So I'm going to read Psalm 127 for us, and I'll pray and we can get started. Psalm 127, follow along with me. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would uh, calm our hearts, or that you would open our eyes. I don't know what everyone's bringing into the room, uh, but I know this time of the semester can be really difficult. It can be difficult to keep up with things and to be present with what's before us. Lord, I pray uh, for my friends here tonight, Lord, that this would be a time of rest, 
a time where um, they can hear from you, be fed, and come and rest. And Lord, I ask that you would help me um, to speak, help me to proclaim your word. And Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing we see here is that success is trusting in God. And that might not be a definition of success that you're used to, but that's what we see here in this passage. And the psalm actually addresses three main areas of human life, and that's kind of what the thumb wars thing Jason was talking about. It, it talks about, in verse 1, building a house. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And then later in verse 1, it talks about watching over a city. It says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see a great deal about having children. And these are three basic areas of human life that are being talked about here. Uh, Building a house. This is creating. This is uh, doing entrepreneurial things. Building something. Watching over a city. This is protecting the things that we have. This is, uh, you know, things like buying insurance. We preserve the things that we have. And then, you know, children. This is family. So these broad areas we see creating, preserving, and children. And for the original audience, these would have been three of the major things that would have defined what it meant to be successful. In the ancient world, you, you couldn't have been successful without these things. So to have a house in the ancient world, it, that would ensure that your family had a place to be safe. It would uh, have given you social status. You would have had security. Uh, you would have been able to host people. In a hospitality culture like that, it would have been a huge thing to have a house. So a successful person would have had a house. But then also watching over a city. Uh, in, in the ancient world, watching over a city meant ensuring that your community is safe. They would station people to look out to make sure that there weren't enemies coming. It, it, it was ensuring safety. It meant that you could plan for the future. And then in the ancient world, children were a really big deal as well. Children were actually the original workforce. Uh, and then also the retirement plan. To have children meant that you would have security and a future. You would have someone who would take care of you. So in the world of the original audience, these three things would have been extremely important. These would have been three things that define success. And more than that, these would have been three things that the people who heard this would have been worrying about a lot. They'd be constantly worrying about their homes. They'd be constantly worried about their safety. They'd be constantly worried about their family. And this psalm talks to these three things. But what about today? Like, we're not living in the ancient Middle East currently. I don't know if you've noticed that. I have. Um, I recently came across an article that listed the top 10 most stressful things for Americans today. And I'm not going to list all of them, but just here's a couple of them. Uh, Losing a family member or a spouse. Marriage or divorce. Uh, Moving or building a home. Uh, Getting a change in your job, whether that's being hired or fired. Finances and debt. And children. You see, as as we're listing these things out, there's a lot of overlap with these things that the original audience would have been thinking about. There's a lot of overlap. There's, There's building things. There's preserving what we have. And there's concerns about family. So we see these concerns still in modern life. But what about here on a college campus? 
right? At, you know, we, we see this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. What, like, is anybody having kids here? I mean, maybe you are. We should talk about that. I'd be interested to know. Um, but another way of getting at this kind of is asking, what, what are we most stressed about? What are we most stressed about here? Can you relate to any of these questions? What if I don't get that internship I applied for? Am I always going to be alone? What if I don't meet that one person who I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with? I mean, college is the time we were supposed to meet him. What if I don't meet him? What if he breaks up with me? Will this all be worth it in the end? Am I networking enough? Am I doing enough? Is my GPA high enough? These are all concerns that we have. It seems we all want to be successful and we feel stressed or worried or panicked when we see that slipping away from us, don't we? So what does this psalm say to us in these areas where we feel stressed? See, in verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And this is talking broadly about this, uh, this thing, this creating, right? We were made to create. We were made to build things. And this is a story in the Bible from the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created the earth, and then he created man to represent him in the earth. That we're supposed to be like God. We're supposed to create things. And a lot of us have come to UNL for this purpose, right? We came so that we could learn things. We came so we could learn things and hopefully apply them, and then hopefully get a job, and hopefully have a career. We're made to create, and this this passage affirms that. But we see here that unless we trust God in our creative work, what we create will ultimately be in vain. What does it mean that it's in vain? It really just means that it'll be pointless. That there's a way that we can create things, and then in the end, we just we sit back and say, well, what was the point of all of that? This is pointless. See, often in our creative work, our, our greatest fear is, will people like this thing that I'm creating? Is my professor going to be satisfied with this paper? Will people like this app that I'm developing? But what this passage is saying to us is that the, the most important thing we could be thinking is, am I trusting God in this? Who am I becoming as I'm doing this? Am I willing to live how he calls me to live regardless of the outcome? Am I trusting God in this? So that's creating. But we see also at the end of or the end of verse one, we see this about preserving. It says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I think it goes without saying that it is a good thing to protect the gifts that we've been given. There's nothing wrong with wanting to protect the things that you have. There's nothing wrong. In the ancient world, there would have been nothing wrong with setting a watchman at night because you're trying to protect what you have. There's nothing wrong with buying insurance. There's nothing wrong with going to the doctor for a checkup, even if you're not sick. These are good things that we're supposed to do. Safety doesn't come, though, from these things. When we assume that our safety comes from these things that we're doing to protect ourselves, that's when we get in trouble. We see here that unless the Lord is watching over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We overestimate our importance if we think that we're actually preserving ourselves. What this passage is showing us is that God is the one who keeps us safe. God is the one who watches over us. 
How much of our anxiety stems from a failure to recognize this? How much sleep do we lose over the fear of losing a relationship? Over the fear of not being able to hang on to the things that God has given us? How much sleep do we lose over, you know, losing an opportunity at a job or at having a perfect GPA? All of these things we think are going to keep us safe. All of these are things that we think are going to preserve our life. But what we see here is that there is a way in which you can work, way in which you can be watchful and still fail. And it's if you don't trust God. But then we see in verses 3 through 5, this, uh, it's talking about family here. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And like I said, uh, I'm not sure that many of us spend much time thinking about having kids yet. Um, you probably have a couple steps that you need to go through first, and I'd love to talk to you about those. Uh, but children and family in general here are shown to be a heritage from the Lord. A heritage from the Lord. What does that mean? It, it just means a gift. A gift from the Lord. Many of us might not be able to relate to this desire to have children, right? Because in, in this area of life, we're not needing children to work in the field for us. We're not needing them as an insurance policy currently right now. But what about family in general? How do we think about family? I know many of us have a lot of anxiety related to our families. Many of us have a lot of fear and worry. Many of us are worried that we're going to let our families down. Many of us feel that our families have let us down. And what we see here is that ultimately our families, like our, like our work of creating and preserving, there's something that comes to us as a gift of God, not as something that we anxiously need to produce ourselves. Like what if that invaded the way that we think about dating, right? I mean, think about that on a, on a college campus. I know for me, when I came to college, I was just like, oh my gosh, I got to find the girl and nothing else matters. But what if we saw that that's not the main goal? What if we saw that that will come in God's time? And that it's not on me to be anxious about that and have to figure that out. What if God doesn't want me to be constantly living out of this state of anxiety? I think that's what we see here in this passage. So what does all of this add up to? All this talk about creating, preserving, and family. I think what it shows us here is that success is defined not by what we have produced, but by trusting in God. Success is defined by not what we have produced, but by trusting in God. And I think this psalm shows us that God is more concerned with process than product. He's more process-minded. God is more concerned with who we are becoming than what we produce. And this is the opposite of our culture in a lot of ways, isn't it? We tend to be thinking about what we can produce are the things that we're making things of value. Do people like them? Do people like me? But what we see here is that God is more concerned with who we are becoming in this process than anything else. In verse 2, it says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You see, even though we see that unless the Lord builds the house, uh, we build it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, we watch over it in vain. We're still called to build. We're still called to be watchful. We're still called to seek out a family. These are all good things to look for. But what this psalm is telling us is that 
it, it, it's pointing its guns at how we do these things. There's a way in which we can do these things. There's a way in which we can, we can create things. We can preserve things in which we are completely missing God. How many of us can relate to verse 2? How many of us have slipped into a pattern like this? Rising up early, going to bed late, not sleeping, eating things that are absolutely terrible for you, not exercising, not worshiping, having every single second of your life planned out, being stressed out. How many of you have decided that these four or maybe five years, if we're being realistic, are just going to be absolute hell and you just got to get through them? You just got to put your head down and do it. I'll worry about resting afterwards. I'll worry about sleep later. I can't afford to slow down. And I think what this psalm encourages us to ask ourselves is, who am I becoming in this? What kind of person am I becoming in this frantic race? What kind of person am I becoming when I skip a meal because I have so much to do? What kind of person am I becoming when I have no time for deep friendship? Sure, you may get through, you may get the degree, you may get the job, but are you going to like who you are at the end of it? The psalm encourages us to ask that question. Is achieving the goal that you have in coming here worth it? Is it worth it to neglect yourself? Is it worth it to neglect your health? It's what the psalm calls us to ask. But the psalm also calls us to acknowledge that we are not God. We are not God. I don't know if that's news for any of you. But practically, we actually live like we're God a lot of times. In our desire to find success, we often find ourselves living as if we're not human beings. We find ourselves living as if we're not limited. We cut out sleep. We cut out leisure. We cut out exercise. We cut out worship. We cut it all out. Why? Because we have this mindset of, if I don't do this, if I don't make this happen, no one else will. I can't afford to do those things. But this psalm shows us that the success of our creating, our preserving, all of these things, it all depends on God. It's not on our shoulders. You see, we are made to be like God, but we're not God himself. Uh, the great theologian and rapper Travis Scott says it like this. Stop trying to be God. That's just not your job. That's a good word. It's not our job to be God. It's not our job. So it's our, it's our calling to trust God. That's what we see in this passage. We need to trust God, but trusting God can be hard. We see here that a call to trust God with everything in life. We see that only what is built by God will last, whether it be a house, a city, or a family. And this is all true, but we still have a really hard time trusting God in everyday life, don't we? It's not easy to trust God. Why is it so hard? I think the uh, first thing that comes to mind is we, we live in a culture that makes trusting God hard. It's not easy to trust God in our culture. Imagine with me uh, for a second that you're in a class and you get an A on an exam. And you get not just an A, it's like 100. You set the curve. And your teacher is very impressed with you. And your teacher asks you to stand up in front of your class of 100 people and give kind of your secret to how you did this. She's like, well, I, clearly you prepared in a way that was really great. I want you to share that with the class. 
So you get up and you start to share. And she asks, well, you know, what, what, what was the secret to your success? And you say this, well, you know, God is really good. I was super anxious about this exam. And honestly, I, I was really worried and panicked a bunch. I prayed a lot and studied a lot. And God was really kind to me. What would it be like for you to say that? Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine there would be a very long pause, an awkward silence. And then probably someone would say, okay, great, God, that's awesome, good for you. But what did you do? How did you study so well? How did you produce such an amazing result? What was the silver bullet that enabled you to get a leg up on everybody else? And I think this sort of response tells us something about our time. It would feel awkward for us to talk about faith in an academic setting because there's an agreement that faith is subjective, that it's private, that it doesn't actually make a difference in the real world. It's fine if you believe that personally, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the real world. In his book, A Secular Age, philosopher Charles Taylor describes our culture as uh, a closed system. And what he means by a closed system is that we live in a world that is kind of intentionally designed uh, to boil everything down to simple cause and effect. It's a closed system in the sense that nothing outside of the system can affect it. All that happens is what you do. It's cause and effect. Emotions are simply chemical reactions in this world. Friendships are simply uh, evolutionarily necessary. There's nothing beyond what we see in a closed system. So in a closed system, if you get a good grade, it just means that you studied hard and prepared more than anyone else, period. If you get a good job, it means that you worked harder than someone else. And in this closed system, ultimately trusting in God makes no sense. Why would you need God in a world like this? We live in a world of cause and effect. No wonder it's so hard for us to trust God. And the natural outworking of this sort of cause and effect uh, living is what I would call hustle culture. You guys familiar with the word hustle? It gets thrown around a whole lot. We live in a world that is completely consumed by hustle. If everything in the world, I mean, it's kind of the natural outworking. If everything in the world is based on simple cause and effect, if I'm not doing something to cause success, then I constantly need to be doing something, don't I? I need to be working all the time. I recently uh, came across an interview of a uh, music producer, a guy named uh, Brandon Korn. He's a music producer for Travis Scott and DJ Khaled. He's very, very successful. Uh, and his alma mater was actually asking him, how did you become so successful? And his quote, I think, is really enlightening. He says, it comes to putting everything aside that doesn't have to do with your goal. I literally only do stuff that's going to further my career, which is working on music every day, answering my emails, and following up with people. That's all he does. And we've bought this hook, line, and sinker as a culture. We believe that if we just work harder, then we're going to achieve our goals. We have to devote ourselves. And we lift up examples of guys like this who, who forsake everything. I mean, his relationships are probably a mess, but that doesn't matter because he's killing the game. We've bought this hook, line, and sinker. But not only do we live in a culture that makes us you know, think this way, it makes it hard to trust God, we actually, in and of ourselves, have a difficult time trusting God. We read things like this psalm and think, great, okay, trust in God, another thing to do. 
Check. Now what do I do? Or maybe uh, we even think, we might think, we might push back on it. Like, this is ridiculous. How, how could I trust God? There's so much that I have to do. If I don't ensure that everything is done right, no one else will. I can't afford to sleep. I can't afford to rest. So where does all of this leave us? Uh, I remember a time uh, in my life where I could relate to a lot of this thinking, uh, this thinking that if I don't ensure everything is done right, no one else will. Uh, so I went to North Carolina State. Uh, my senior year, I had, I think, just like one class that I had to add on. And I was trying to look for, you know, a really easy cupcake of a class uh, that would just ensure me having a good last semester. Uh, and I chose, I was a political science major, so I chose a political science class um, because I was like, well, I know this stuff, so it should be super easy. And I choose, chose a class called International Relations. Uh, and the class seemed interesting, uh, but unfortunately, it turns out it was one of the harder courses in my major, uh, and I didn't know that. And then when I, after I'd gotten in the class, I looked on the grade distribution, and this professor had like a ton of Fs, Ds, and Cs, and like one or two As. Uh, so I was like, great, good job, Thomas. You made a really wonderful decision. Uh, and to further complicate this, I already knew what I was going to be doing after graduation. I had applied for uh, the REF internship, and I got the job. I was going to go work at the University of Kentucky, and it was like my dream job. I was really excited about it. So the only thing that stood in the way of my dream job uh, was ultimately we, me passing this semester. And this class ended up being a significant part of that. Uh, and the interesting thing about this class... Uh, this professor, I don't know if you guys have any professors like this, and some of you may be TAing, so forgive me if you're like this, but I didn't get any grades back until the end of the semester in this class. So I had absolutely no idea how I was doing in this class. Uh, and fun fact about me, I tend to be an anxious person. Um, so you can imagine how that would run amok in someone's mind like myself. And then at the end of the semester, we had a group project that was worth 50% of the class grade. 50%. We had to write a paper together. And I was the only senior in my uh, group project. I was also, I think, the only one who cared at all about this. Uh, so I had a group of people who they just, I, they, it didn't seem like they, they cared or not. I've never understood that. I just care way too much about everything, which is kind of my personality. Uh, but the way that I dealt with this was I took the whole project on myself. I decided if you're not going to do it, then I am. And why did I do this? Well, I, I had this line of thinking. First, it was, if I don't do this, no one else will. And the next is, if I don't do this, then I won't graduate, because I'll fail this class. And if I don't graduate, then I won't get to do RUF, and RUF's going to fire me. And if RUF fires me, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And then the next thing was probably, if I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, I'm going to die. Like, that was the level of thinking that I had, this black and white thinking. And this left me in a place of absolute anxiety, where I was just frantically doing, I was frantically trying to put this assignment together, and I just couldn't do it. And the ironic part of this all was that I was going to work for a Christian ministry after college, and the last thing I ever thought to do was depend on God through all of this. The last thing I ever thought to do was pray through how I was feeling with this, to reach out to a friend, to talk to a pastor. It was the last thing I thought of. And all of this came to a head for me uh, one time about the last week of the semester. I was sitting outside the library, and I just sat there, 
and then all of a sudden started just shaking uncontrollably. Just couldn't stop. And then I started crying. And I was like, how is this happening? Like, what's going on? And then I had one of those experiences where you feel like you're actually watching something happen to yourself, kind of like an out-of-body experience. And it was just, it was a full-on panic attack. I was so petrified that I wasn't going to be able to get this thing done because it all depended on me. And if I didn't get this done, I wasn't going to have my dream job. If I didn't have my dream job, nothing was going to happen. You see, when we live in such a way where we think that everything is on us, inevitably, we're going to crack. Inevitably, something like this is going to happen. And maybe it won't be a panic attack for you. I don't know what it will be. But something's got to give eventually. And maybe some of us, maybe that's where you are right now. And if you are, I just want to say, like, I'm so glad you're here. And it's okay. And we want RUF to be a place where you can come as you are. Maybe that's where some of us are right now. But we live in a culture that makes trusting God seem ridiculous. And we ourselves are resistant to trusting in God. But we also see in this psalm that God wants us to trust him. God wants us to trust him. So how can we trust him when there's so much going against us? When we live in a culture that doesn't want us to trust God, when we ourselves so often don't want to trust God, how in the world can we trust him? What grace does God give us to enable us to trust him? There's a couple things in this passage. I think first, kind of as like a, a, a meta point, the fact that this psalm is in the Bible shows that God wants us to trust him. Week in and week out, the people of Israel would have sang something like this song together. And they would have reminded each other that true success is trusting in God. Success is not in what you produce. It's in, it's in being with God. It's in trusting him. See, the fact that God put this psalm in the Bible shows us that God is deeply concerned with us living lives of success, lives that trust him in everything. And imagine with me if RUF was a place on campus that truly believed this. What would that look like? Imagine if RUF was a place that valued process over product. If it was a place that we could simply be together, even if we're not crushing it. What if RUF became a place where we were more concerned with who we were becoming than what we can produce? What if RUF was a place that you could just come and rest, where you could come and acknowledge, I am not God, and people could be on the exact same page as you? Doesn't that sound great? That's what I need. That's what we all need. We need a place where we can rest. But second, I think some, some grace that we see in this passage, I, I don't think it's up there on the screen, actually, but uh, in your Bibles, there's a heading above this psalm. It says, a song of a sense, and it says, of Solomon. And this psalm was actually written by Solomon. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, let me tell you, in a lot of ways, Solomon was the perfect person to write this psalm, because he was the definition of success. Solomon was a, a king of Israel, and he, he led Israel really at the height of their prosperity, the kingdom was united. He built the temple. He was wiser than anyone who ever lived. He was richer than anyone who ever lived. He enjoyed success in every way, shape, and form. And he trusted God through it all. He was the perfect person to write this. But if you know the story of Solomon, you know that he actually is also the worst person in the world to possibly write this psalm. 
In 1 Kings 10, we, we read about his success. It says, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. And then in 1 Kings 11, immediately after this, we learn all about the total collapse of Solomon's kingdom and family. You see, the very man who wrote this, who urged us to trust God in all things, ultimately ended his own life as a failure. He failed to trust God, and all that he built came crashing down. He failed to trust God, and his kingdom was not preserved. He failed to trust God, and his family was a mess. If you don't believe me, read 1 Kings 11. It's a mess. So why in the world would God move a man like this to write a song about success and preserve it for us? What's God doing in that? And I think that God put this in the Bible so that we can learn from Solomon's mistakes. The person who experienced the pinnacle of worldly success was ultimately a failure. And how merciful is it that God recorded this down for us? That he put it in the Bible for us. You see, when we look at this psalm, we see that God cares about us so much that he put this psalm in there so that he could warn us. He could warn us that the most dangerous thing that we could do is fail to trust God. We're at our most dangerous when we're not trusting God. All that we produce is going to mean nothing unless we trust God. And then finally, I think we can see God's grace in this, uh, especially in verse 2, where it says, He gives to his beloved sleep. And this is so countercultural in a lot of ways. Uh, we see in our culture that sleep is what comes after we succeed. We think we have this narrative of you work really hard your entire life, and then you get to retire and enjoy it. You get to rest later, but you've got to grind until then. But in this passage, we see something entirely different. We see that God gives to his beloved sleep. It doesn't say that God gives to the deserving sleep. It says God gives to the ones that he loves sleep. See, our culture says work yourself to death, earn your keep, and then finally someday, eventually, you may get to sleeping. But the gospel says that Jesus has done everything in your place. Now come, sleep, rest, and live your life out of that rest. See, Jesus invites us to vacation before we've even done anything. That's the gospel. And Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see how different that is from everything that we're accustomed to believing? Jesus just says, come to me. Our culture and even our own hearts tell us that we can't afford to rest until we've done enough. And we've actually never done enough, so we can never rest. But Jesus bids us to come to him and rest before we've even done anything. He says, do you feel tired? Come to me. He says, I love you so much that you can afford to rest. I love you so much that you can relax. I love you so much that I want to bless you before you even do anything. I want you to sleep. And I want you to function out of that sleep. I want you to know that you are secure before you do anything. That's what Jesus says to us. So I wonder, are you tired tonight? Are you tired? 
I know I am. And I don't know where you are tonight, but I, I know that Jesus calls you to come to him and rest. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 127. We thank you that uh, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Lord, we thank you that uh, you call us to trust you in our doing. Lord, that you don't want us to anxiously work ourselves to death. No, Lord, that you are in control. Lord, that we're called to be like you. But Lord, that you are also the type of God who who calls us to um, focus more on how we're doing than what we're producing. Lord, that you love us so much that it's okay for us to rest. It's okay for us to slow down. And I pray that uh, each and every one of us would, would understand how loved we are in Jesus and that he invites us to rest. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.